I'm again reaching into the PPFA vault because on this date, May 26th, in 1940, the greatest evacuation in human history occurred. I want to talk about it. If you couldn't tell already, today's topic has nothing to do with politics or current events. Just like on my website, presidentialpoliticsforamerica.com, there are times I just want to talk about history for history's sake. The best gimmick to do that, I think, are historical anniversaries. Today, I'm looking at the 82nd anniversary of the beginning of the Dunkirk evacuation, a key moment of World War II. I emphasize beginning because it took a while. One does not evacuate 338,000 people in a single day. So although the Dunkirk evacuation began on May 26, 1940, it lasted until June 4th, eight days later. By the end of the evacuation, not only had the operation saved hundreds of thousands of lives, it may have saved the war. So today, on its 82nd anniversary, let's talk about Dunkirk. I'm Ian Cheney, and this is nothing resembling presidential politics for America. There's a chance today's episode isn't your first time learning about Dunkirk. Perhaps you remember learning about it in school or through a random summary on the internet. Most likely, however, is that you saw Christopher Nolan's film about it. In fact, when I first wrote the post that became today's episode, it was in anticipation of that movie. I thought the film was incredible. Truly one of the most awing experiences I've had in a movie theater. It was an immersive experience that took us through the soldiers' experiences on the beach, in the air, and above and below the waters of the English Channel. And yet, as much as I loved the movie, it left me feeling a bit empty. No one wanted us to see and feel what the soldiers saw and felt during the evacuation, and I think he did a good job of it. But being the mediocre historian I am, I wanted to see more of the context. What was happening around the evacuation, and why was it happening? Since individual soldiers saw little of that broader context, including the massive flotilla that was sent to pick them up, the movie's scope was too narrow for that context. Today's episode hopes to broaden that scope. So let's talk about it. The year was 1940. The month was May, and the bloodiest conflict in world history was just getting started. After Germany invaded Poland in September of 1939, Poland's strongest allies, the United Kingdom and France, responded by declaring war on Germany, and the Second World War began. But just because the UK and France declared war does not mean they fought it. In what was called the Phony War, the British and French made almost no military response other than preparation. The British press also called this period the Boer War, B-O-R-E, 
which was some classic British humor that combined Britain's oddly non-combative posture with Britain's Boer War, B-O-E-R, fought in South Africa at the turn of the century. This fecklessness on the part of the British and French was seen as part of a broader Western betrayal. The 1930s saw the rise of Adolf Hitler, first its political rise in Germany, and then in Germany's remilitarization and expansion. In 1938, Hitler had annexed Czechoslovakia, while the Western powers, including its toothless League of Nations, did little more than appease and protest. After Germany's invasion of Poland in 1939, Britain and France declared war on Germany and prepared for war, but any counter-offensives were either half-hearted, short-lived, or never even attempted. It was as if the Western powers, still mired in a sort of collective PTSD after World War I, froze in anxiety. For the eight months after Hitler's successful Polish conquest, the only mainland measure the UK took was to send the British Expeditionary Force, or BEF, to shore up defenses along the Belgian-French border. And there, they waited. Hitler's next move snapped the West out of its petrification. On May 10th, eight months after the invasion of Poland, Hitler finally sent his Blitzkrieg west, invading Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Belgium, and France. Luxembourg lasted one day, the Netherlands four days, and Belgium held out for 18. France held out longer, but by May 21st, Germany had nearly encircled the northwest part of the country, along the Belgian border. For those who need to see it, I've linked a map in this episode's description. Just try to picture a half a million Allied soldiers scattered across the French-Belgian border, Germans on three sides of them, and the English Channel on the fourth. Inside that near encirclement was about half a million Allied soldiers, including Belgians, Frenchmen, Canadians, and tens of thousands of recently deployed British of the BEF, who had been sent over during the phony phase of the war. Embedded within the BEF was, as UK Prime Minister Winston Churchill described them, quote, the whole root and core and brain of the British Army. Emotionally, these were hundreds of thousands of fathers, sons, husbands, and brothers, and to lose them would have been devastating, a devastating psychological development for Britain and other allies. But beyond the emotional aspect was a strategic one. Strategically, to lose so many soldiers and leaders so quickly might have ended the war's European theater well before the United States arrived to tip the balance 18 months later. Indeed, British leaders that weren't Churchill considered signing a treaty with the Germans, saving the lives of the surrounded soldiers, but also removing not only the British from the war, but also the future base from which the US and allies would eventually spearhead the Normandy invasion. A miraculous recovery of the stranded men wouldn't necessarily win the war for the allies, but their deaths or capture may have lost it. 
What happened next, therefore, was a pretty big deal. If you do look at the map, you'll see that at about the midway point of the still Allied control coast, just south of the Belgian-French border, there's a port town called Dunkirk. After getting almost encircled by German forces, Allied leaders, chief among them General John Vereker of the BEF, determined that an evacuation via sea at Dunkirk's harbor and beach was the best hope to siphon survivors, however few there might end up being. On May 20th, London delivered the evacuation order. They called it Operation Dynamo. The evacuation decision was paired with the first bit of good fortune for the Allies. The general in command of the overwhelming German charge, Gerd von Rundstedt, held back the ground assault on May 24th. His concerns included the increasingly marshier terrain and that the German blitzkrieg had operated almost too smoothly, and he wanted to shore up his flanks and allow slower-moving supplies to catch up to their attack. Instead of continuing the incursion, he suggested that the German Air Force, the fearsome Luftwaffe, which had proven dominant so far in the war, first soften the cornered allies before the army came in to more easily finish the job. For years, most people thought this was Hitler's mistake, but he merely sustained Rundstedt's dubious decision. The ground attack did not recommence for three days. By then, the Dunkirk evacuation was already underway. Beginning on May 26, they evacuated about 8,000 soldiers across the English Channel. It occurred, of course, against a racing clock. Not only did the Luftwaffe barrage the retreating soldiers, but the resumption of the ground attack acted as a tightening noose around the survivors. All of northern France was going to be swallowed up by Nazis, and the Allies wanted as many men off the beach before that happened. Back in England, King George VI held a national day of prayer for the boys of Britain trapped on the other side of the channel. The Archbishop of Canterbury asked for all British to pray, quote, for our soldiers in dire peril in France. It was as if people knew this was going to get bad. These prayers, however, were answered mainly by three groups of heroes. First, the ground forces at the Battle of Dunkirk showed exceptional bravery. British, French, Canadian, and Belgian soldiers had the difficult mission of resisting a ferocious German war machine. Their sobering mission was not to win the battle or push the Germans back east, but only instead to slow the unstoppable Nazi charge as much as they could in order to buy time for the evacuees. Every hour saved lives. And so the rear guard became heroes. Thousands died in this desperate defense of their countrymen closer to the beach. Simultaneously, there was the heroism of a second group, the Royal Air Force, or RAF, its job was to repel, to the best of its ability, the Luftwaffe airways on the soldiers below. Remember, this was back when warplanes were pretty rudimentary. 
hundreds of such propeller aircraft took to the skies in complex, harrowing dogfights the rest of us probably couldn't stomach were it safely on our living room's TV screen. The RAF lost 145 planes in this engagement, but it took down 156 German ones and greatly hindered Nazi plans to slaughter or capture the Allied soldiers on the ground. Our third and perhaps most famous set of heroes are the little ships of Dunkirk. Though the Royal Navy was en route to Dunkirk with orders to haul the evacuees across the English Channel, the large hulled ships that could carry the thousands they were hoping to save could not access the shallow shores of Dunkirk's beach. Many soldiers needed to somehow get from the beach of Dunkirk to the out-of-reach ships. But the ships did not carry nearly enough smaller tender boats to efficiently do the transfer. Thousands of soldiers queued shoulder-deep into the channel, awaiting transport to ships they might not live long enough to board. As a result, the British government sent out a plea to all civilians with boats on the Thames and English coast, and the plea was simple. Can you help us? Did they ever? Hundreds of volunteer merchants, fishermen, and yacht owners relinquished their boats to the Royal Navy. Many even volunteered to captain their own boat across the English Channel and toward the Nazis. I'll say that again, toward the Nazis. When they arrived in France, some boats ferried soldiers to the larger ships, and some made the journey back across the Channel with Allied soldiers on their deck and Nazi warplanes off their stern. Dogfights within sight. And then some did it again. And again. Of the approximately 800 naval and private vessels engaged in the evacuation, over a quarter were sunk. Meanwhile, the Luftwaffe flew overhead and the Nazi army drew closer. So close, in fact, that German heavily artillery rained shells into Dunkirk. Many died. Fires erupted. People panicked. But the evacuation continued. And with it, so did the incredible communal heroism of Operation Dynamo. Allied armies bore down, the Royal Air Force offered cover, and the little ships of Dunkirk pulled away tens of thousands of soldiers each day. The British rearguard, who for a week had joined the French in fighting off the German advance, finally themselves retreated to the shore and boarded vessels on June 2nd and June 3rd. Another 75,000 grateful French joined them as they crossed the channel to become refugees in the UK. With the last boats away on June 4th, the French rearguard, comprised of 40,000 brave soldiers, laid down their arms and surrendered to the Germans. A job well done. Allied soldiers would not return to France's northwest shore for another four years. The evacuation of Dunkirk occurred across nine days and claimed the lives of nearly 70,000 Allied soldiers. But they didn't die for nothing. Late the first day, May 26th, a little short of 8,000 soldiers were evacuated. On the second day, 18,000 soldiers followed them. On the subsequent days, 
there were 47,000, 54,000, 68,000, 64,000, 26,000, 27,000, and then another 26,000. In those nine days, the total number of rescued British, French, and other Allied soldiers numbered an astonishing 338,226. That was 338,226 reunions with fathers, brothers, and sons. And it was 338,226 more troops to continue the war effort against the Nazi menace. The miracle of Dunkirk, both logistically and psychologically, paired with forthcoming heroism and resolve to allow Britain to survive long enough for the American entrance into the war after Pearl Harbor gave President Roosevelt presidential politics connection, enough political support to do what he had wanted to do for some time. The Allies didn't win World War II at Dunkirk, but not losing it was good enough for nine days' work. The Dunkirk spirit went on to infect Britain and other antagonists of the Axis, strengthening a resolve that ultimately led to victory over Hitler's tyranny. Churchill quickly commemorated the critical operation. As if Britain were not inspired enough after snatching salvation from the clutches of catastrophe, the Prime Minister filed the evacuation with his hallmark June 4th House of Commons speech. In it, he said the following, quote, Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until... In God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. We should all be thankful to Dunkirk for making that possible. All right, that's it for Dunkirk. Over the next eight days, I hope you remember that heroism of 82 years ago. I'll be back with a new episode next week about something not at all controversial, critical race theory. Until then, I'm Ian Cheney, and this was Presidential Politics for America. <laughs>